Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener. You'll have ad-free episodes and join us on our monthly Zoom calls with other podcast listeners and get to know the community at wearelatech.love. Linked in the show notes. I think the added value is that we're not just like quality of writing style necessarily. It's like we're contextualizing what's going on in the space from a really high level and a really long arc of, of knowledge base. Imagine living your normal day and getting your car fueled up on demand. Seriously, check out LA Startup Refill Fuel and enter code WEARLATECH for $10 off. That's Refill Fuel. It's amazing. Literally, you can be anywhere and have your gas totally topped off the tank and not even have to deal with it. No more gas stations. So go to RefillFuel.com. That's R-E-F-I-L-L-F-U-E-L.com. Code WeRLATech for $10 off. We could not do this without the community believing in our vision together. We Are LA Tech is independently funded, funded by you, the community. So to support We Are LA Tech, go to patreon.com slash we are LA Tech. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash we are LA Tech. Hi, everyone. My name is Brian Nickerson. I'm co-founder of Magic Links. I am guest hosting for Esprit Devora on We Are LA Tech all things about the LA tech startup community. And I am so excited today to have Jocelyn Johnson on the show. She's the founder of Video Inc. Uh, Jocelyn, welcome. That's I-N-K with, uh, with instead of the C. I know that <laughs> some people, when they visualize it, they think we're video comma Inc, but we're actually, like, we're talking about deals and deal flow. So yeah, video it's Inc. fun to make that, that clarification. <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited to be here too, though. It's, it's a, it's a good time to be in the tech scene in LA. Yeah, absolutely. And so you are both an entrepreneur and a, a media entrepreneur. Um, so tell it, tell us a little bit more, like what's, what's going on in the video Inc world um, for people who don't know, introduce, introduce the company and kind of what, what you do. Yeah, so Video Inc. is a go-to publication for the executives working in the video industry. So anything that has to do with streaming entertainment online, whether that's from the programming side, meaning shows and content, or the actual tech infrastructure side, like Roku, or, you know, someone who's helping um, aggregate video content, or, you know, even sometimes on the on the underbelly, like the Calturas of the world, like the OVPs, the mm -hmm. online video players, we'll cover that. And then we cover the deals and economics of the space as well. And so what, what gave you the idea to start this company? So I, w I was running a PR firm for five years that I had started. Um, I was kind of early to the last wave, I would say the last boom of video and video entertainment. And so I had a number of clients that I was working with it, um, right after YouTube had funded for hundred channels. Um, mm. Got a lot of clients out of that particular funding. It really sparked an entire industry around just that one single investment. But uh, my learnings through running that communications team for the first couple years was that the Hollywood trades and even some of the tech trades weren't really covering what was going on in the entertainment space or in the video entertainment space. And 
I thought this is an underserved area. Like it's important to have a publication that surfaces deals, that holds people accountable for deals. It serves as a barometer for the industry because it helps advance the business. It holds people accountable. It surfaces winners from losers and it starts to serve as an educational Mm -hmm. home for anyone who's looking to invest or do a startup or make a partnership or hire someone. Like all of those key pieces and elements of an industry, if there's not a publication or a media entity kind of serving as a go-to, then I, from my perspective, I thought we were going to be held back as an industry. Yeah. And it's, a, and maybe needed, especially because there's so much change happening in that industry right now. Yeah. And at that time, the Hollywood entertainment space and the video entertainment space were very black and white. So there wasn't really an overlap like we see today. And it was almost a bastardized area. It was like, if you worked in video, it was kind of like, oh, you're the black sheep of the family or like, we don't really acknowledge you or you're not really taken seriously. And that was another reason I realized that there needed to be a a hard hitting news or media source um, for these particular companies because they did have interesting deals. They did have good quality shows and programming. There were interesting startup um, technology companies on the video space emerging and those, those guys needed recognition, but they also, um, you know, needed to be covered so that again, like as capitals coming into the industry, as deals are getting done, there's like some intelligence around that, not just a black hole of info. Right. Right. So most people are, or at least I, I would think, right. Start starting a journalism business and a, and a, and a real like hardcore, like breaking almost like investigative, not fully investigative, right? But like you are breaking real stories. Um, I know recently um, Video Inc. and Jocelyn, they they were the people who broke the stories around, you know, both Style Hall and Full Screen and some of the changes those companies have made recently in terms of their their team and their management structure. Like you guys are authoritative. Um, and this is a scary time for all of journalism. So how, why, <laughs> you're not afraid of that, clearly. I mean, I I hear, right, what's happening in the industry, but like, why jump off of this cliff? (laughs) Yeah, no, um, it's, I mean, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful observation and and a a very tricky time to be a media business or in in the entertainment or um, in the journalism space and reporting space. Um, I fundamentally believed at that particular time that the opportunity was ripe for um, an intelligent you know, hard hitting publication. So, um, t- tell us a little bit about some of the early stories that, that you broke and what kind of helped solidify that position as a hard hitting journalistic, uh, you know, enterprise that people are looking to for critical information in the industry. Yeah, I had the viewpoint kind of early on when I was iterating the business that there was a need for a publication that did this, but that in order for us to be really important, um, we ultimately had to make people a little nervous. And to make people a little nervous in a healthy way, not in a bullyish way like what Nikki Fink did, but in a healthy way, um, you had to be able to deliver scoops. You had to be reputable in the information you were delivering. You had to be challenging with merit and celebratory with merit. Mm. And so we broke our first story within the first week um, of us even pushing the site live. I think we went live on like April 13th or April 8th. And then I think we broke our first story on April 13th. And that was the, uh, <laughs> oh, wow. right? um, it was, uh, the M and a between, um, DBG and then alloy digital, which is now known as defy media. Mm-hmm. So 
that really got us on the map. I think when I called Jody, um, who's their, still their PR person inside of Defy, she was like, who is this person? And I had also scooped a really um, reputable reporter who I respect to this day, Peter Kafka, and who I'd worked with for years on my <laughs> PR side. And so it was kind of interesting to see the opportunity and then also my world's kind of colliding. And then our next big one was um, in... A month, I think a month within a month after we launched, we broke the valuation of Awesomeness TV's acquisition from DreamWorks. Um, mm. And so, really, like within that first nine months, we saw seventy percent, sixty-five to seventy percent month-over-month growth in terms of our audience. So, wow. I think that was a testament to just really how needed we were, and that people were really hungry for a destination to go to that they could trust and that was serving up important information that helped them be better at their jobs, better mm-hmm. at deal making better and like, you know, talking about the industry and moving it forward. So who, what, what companies journalistically do you look up to? I would say I, I more look at some of the important reporters versus, uh, um, versus looking at like a certain publication. Um, like I said, at Peter Kafka, I think is one of the smartest yeah. reporters in the space, especially on the tech side. And, you know, some people would say that he's like very difficult to work with, but I just think he's just like a no BS, like straight shooter. He tells it like it is. And when I think about how I want to write or how I want video inks tone to be, mm-hmm. I continually go back to that. And like, I want us to be again, like, holding people accountable when it's deserved, like not tiptoeing around some of the issues, not being afraid to like make people a little uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think he's interesting on like a larger scale, same thing. Like I, th- I thought um, Rachel Maddow, like through the election mm-hmm. um, night was actually really interesting. And I gained a lot of respect for her as mm-hmm. a reporter because I was flipping through a lot of the different channels um, and I personally am having a struggle with being in the media space when I don't respect the larger media space. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, she was the only reporter across the board who had no physical, visceral response of her opinion about what was happening. Mm-hmm. She was very, like, st- I think, towed a very strict line with herself of whether she agrees or doesn't agree, like these are the facts, this is what's happening in this state and that state, and this is what's happening with the voting and let's cut over here and let's just like, let's stay on journalistic integrity versus like some of the other reporters who are showing dismay or, you know, kind of not, not being neutral to neutralist space, like having, having a very visceral response physically about where they personally stood on issues. So um, I think that's just, I think her, and then I would say Peter. Uh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful response. So how, um, given that it's more journalists than journalistic enterprises, right? Because what came to mind for me was almost like Washington Post. And maybe that's like many, many years ago in Catherine Graham days. But that that was, that as I hear you describe Video Inc., at least that, that came to mind for me. Um, but I, I guess one question I have is, how, how do you find amazing reporters on your team? How do you source that? Is that is that part and parcel of being in the industry? Do you help train people? How do you how do you build a team that can bring those same connections and integrity that you're bringing to the conversation and scale it when so many media businesses and journalistic endeavors really have been struggling with that, especially recently? I ultimately think it comes down to training. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I write is more on the scoops and reported pieces and kind of high level industry arc type of content. And then I have a couple other writers that supply us um, with stories that are about state of the industry from 
they're still smart and savvy, of course, but they're not necessarily relating to the overall arc of why this is important with the state of the business. So I find that there's like two different types of writers and reporters. And I think just in tone, um, the person who's really solid in structure and the integrity of being a journalist in terms of writing style and being really structured in writing really great content. Um, And then there's the more colloquial, but like fiery and kind of go out there and maybe piss people off a little bit because they're Mm -hmm. talking in a way that, that resonates with people from a human level. Um, And I don't think they can necessarily jump onto each side, but I think it's important to hire people probably culturally as well in any business. Mm -hmm. They kind of fit both those bills, right? Someone who's a little bit spontaneous and fiery and a little, maybe a little bit of a risk, but not risky. And then someone who's like very stable, like structured, good integrity to like the grammar, right? Like (laughs) the structure, the like APA style, all of those, all of those pieces. But (laughs) in terms of like the reporting stuff, I definitely, I enjoy training training people on that and pushing them to think critically about the industry from a healthy place. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I want to, I want to move into, since you see so much of what the future of this industry and what this space is, I want to kind of move the conversation in that direction. Um, so, so VR is a big place, um, where there's a lot of conversation and a lot of sort of, you know, as Hollywood struggles and, and as people are, there's less kind of box office hits and that the movie business is struggling. A lot of people are talking about VR as the next place that is going to, going to capture people. Um, what, what are you seeing? What do you, what do you think, you know, we, we have yet to sort of have a breakthrough in VR in terms of a, a device that is, has mass adoption. Um, so what do you see? Like, what do the next couple of years hold in VR in, you know, from the conversations that you're privy to? Yeah. I mean, I've always been bearish on VR. Bearish. Bearish from the beginning. Like I was not really like, oh yeah, this is going to take over. Oh yeah, this is the future. I've been somewhat on the more critical side and a a little bit of a naysayer. Um, And I would say probably 18 to approaching probably 24 months ago, uh, there was just tons of capital flooding into the space. I mean, Mm -hmm. companies were raising at ridiculous valuations and you know, at that, there was a point in time where we thought like, okay, let's, let's actually start covering the VR beat. There was a time when publications, not very different in style from video ink started pop, pop, popping up and mm-hmm. to cover the category of VR. And that has almost overnight, it's crazy to watch dissipated. And all we hear about is AR and augmented yeah. and how immersive and kind of 360 is still, um, something that is on people's mind, but from like the VR perspective, funding has dried up. It's a lot more difficult to Mm. to get funding. A number of the companies that sort of had an 18 month runway ended up folding or going out of business. Um, Device adoption just has not taken off in the way I think a lot of people anticipated. And there are some very strong use cases for VR and there are environments that that can work. Um, From my perspective, I, I, I have yet to see someone who nails it in the store, actual true storytelling, storytelling. cinematic um, space. What are the what are the places in VR that you think like where, what are the strong value propositions that you see now? So there's a company called Two Bit Circus um, that is actually a really interesting technology company coming out. Well, yeah, technology and entertainment company um, based here in LA that is launching a 
amusement park, like a 360 sort of immersive experience and, and v, mostly VR experience in downtown LA. Mm -hmm. So I think that that kind of environment is like, what's the virtual, like what's the literal space that you, they put you in a virtual environment that you can move around through and interact with objects and things um, so that VR is like fully experienced. Um, and I think in some of the gaming space, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, another area. I think that's an obvious one. Like if, I think if someone was like, oh, she didn't say gaming, they'd be surprised, but I'm <laughs> I'm going to say gaming because yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And then I, I think that the next couple areas that will be really interesting, um, are going to be kind of, what does it look like in the like dating sphere or like relationship mm -hmm. sphere and communication side of things? Um, not even in terms of like necessarily bringing people together in a virtual reality dating environment, but more of what does it look like to have a long distance relationship or to have your mm -hmm. husband or, or wife overseas or, you know, family in different parts of the world. I think that's interesting. Um, companies like Riot have seen massive success with just tapping into empathy and mm -hmm. like the human element of taking somewhere, someone into a, a visceral experience like post earthquake or sure. battle zone or, you know, anything where people wouldn't physically normally travel there. I think all those are yeah. interesting. So on the, on the AR side, I want to dive in there a little bit. And, um, I, I heard to kind of illustrate that point, I, I heard uh, Nolan Bushnell talk, um, about a year ago. Yeah. Um, so Nolan Bushnell was one of the founders of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese and just great, uh, entrepreneur and technologist. And he was talking about his experience between VR and AR and how he thought AR was really where it's at. Um, and in part because VR is so immersive, but AR can actually be sort of a part of your life, right? So imagine wearing, you know, Google glasses and and seeing like, you know, someone's name or a restaurant or something that that actually enhances your kind of real experience. Um, so what what do you see in the AR space? Like what what is there anything that excites you uh, thematically or or with particular companies? I mean, I've, this might be a little obvious, but there's a lot of just conversation around Magic Leap and actually like, what can you, what can you do actually with mm -hmm. projecting things into people's actual eyes, <laughs> um, which is a little terrifying and also super fascinating at the same time. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just, again, like I'm a little bit cautious on buying into that. I can see where people would think that because this sort of layer of um, connectivity is missing, Right. Or like, is actually more present, I should say, because in VR, like the layer of connectivity between you and I, if we were in the same room right now with headsets on would almost be non-existent besides the fact that we conceptually know that you're in the room with me. Right. right. <laughs> right. Um, or yeah. unless you had an avatar, but even then it wouldn't really fully be you. Um, so I think in with that layer of connectivity kind of removed and people saying that's why AR will work. I still wonder if it's a fad. I mean, how many months ago was it that Pokemon Go was like the pinnacle right. peak example of how AR could work? And now it's it's a non-conversation. Um, same thing, you, you said Google Glass, and I keep coming back to this quite a bit. And I'm like, well, what happened with Google Glass? You yeah. know, like, too early? Like, would they revive that project? Like, did it not take off? I mean, I feel like AR and live streaming are the two um, areas that, are like the little engines that could. They always want to take off, but they just, it never seems like they do. Um, so is that, is, is, is what's missing the hardware? Is it, is it like affordable, awesome hardware? And once that's that, once that platform is there, cause right, like mobile, mobile devices until Apple came out with the iPhone, that totally changed how people experience their mobile device. 
And that seems like that was a breakthrough in that space. Is that like, are we waiting for the hardware that works and it's actually a hardware company that's going to break through or, or (laughs) maybe it's an impossible question. I think it's, it's going to take an experience that has such high value for people Mm -hmm. that they have to have it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that's a a similar functionality for any startup tech company. It's like, is your functionality so like essential or so like amazing that someone needs to have it. So I think like eventually there could be something in the shopping world and like a retail space Mm. where, um, you know, it's the convenience factor around shopping or getting prices or getting discounts or like blurring the lines between that could be interesting. interesting or maybe even AR where like you're able to try something on or kind of see what your body type would look like without having to go in and dressing like something along those lines where yeah. it makes convenience of one particular area of your life so much better Yeah, that like if you need a glass to do it like you or a lens or, you know, some sort of app to do it, you will. Gosh, I'm just like picturing like you walk into Nordstrom, see some things that you like. Maybe you maybe you have your own like avatar so you can see the clothes on you visually without even having to try it on and then like blink your left eyelid or something and then the clothes are waiting for you when you get home. Like yeah. something like that that would be amazing. Oh yeah. This is what I mean though by saying that I feel like it's almost like the little engine that could same yeah. as live stream. It's because there have been so many companies even like 10 years ago that were trying to do that where you'd point your cell phone or your tablet at a billboard yeah, and you'd be able to instantly order that exact bag or like be walking by a storefront. If you saw something, be able to see the price and then order it directly to your house. And some of those applications still haven't really taken off. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested (laughs) to keep watching it, but right now in terms of what I hear and in terms of the way people are talking about AR versus VR, they've sort of loosely given up on VR and reallocated bandwidth to more immersive or like 360 where you don't have to have a headset necessarily um, or just AR experiences. Yeah. You have, you know, this sort of blend, right, of traditional media and tech and that those have traditionally been at odds with each other, I think a little bit, um, where, right, you have traditional media, the art of storytelling is very much an art. Um, And then technology is very much technology, right? There's algorithms, there's, there's math behind, there's more science, I think generally to tech than there, than art and and maybe vice versa. And you have these blending, right? So um, are there any trends you're seeing there that, you know, are interesting that you'd, you'd, you'd want to highlight? I, I think there's, yeah, there's been kind of differing opinions on if Hollywood can become a tech company or Hollywood-based companies can become tech companies and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see almost every single tech company trying to become a media company. So I think that's very telling. Facebook's trying to become a media company. Verizon's trying to be a media company. AT&T's trying to be a media company. Mm-hmm. Twitter's trying to be a media company. Um, full screen is, you know, working to be a media company. They originally started out as really like facilitating the tech and the infrastructure for YouTubers, not as an entertainment right. pr- programmer themselves. Right. So they're trying to crack that. I think it's um, culturally very difficult. I think, um, I think it, they just serve different areas. They serve different purposes. Like mm-hmm. um, from my perspective, and I'd love your input on this too, because you see the tech scene too, but um, I feel that tech is usually function and, Mm-hmm. you know, media or just other, other, um, startups are more entertainment based. And so can you really be both function and entertainment at the same time? Right. And where <laughs> do you put your 
engineering resources really is like what it comes down to. Yeah. One of the things I see, right, is in almost you see like Facebook, Google a few years ago, almost resisting the media company label. And so the way you would hear that, right, is is like we're it's not our business is to provide the platform to let other people talk about things, but we're not a media company in the terms of we're discerning about what actually gets published. And then and then now you see, especially with the elections, right now you have Facebook, like the media that was being published onto Facebook, some cases free, some cases paid for, actually played a role to some extent in the election, or at least like there, there is controversy around that. Mm-hmm. And now you see what I think Facebook would, I think they would define themselves more as a tech company, but realizing, hey, we can't just, we can't outsource and just be like, oh, it was the algorithms that messed up or it was the algorithm that's deciding, but they actually have to bring some discernment into that, into the practice of what people see, because that's now where people are consuming information um, in many cases more so, you know, than any, than any other platform and then any other, than going to media sites directly. Yeah. I mean, and do you think that the people, do you think that people care though? Do you think consumers like ultimately at the end of the day care if, if the startup company is facilitating either of those sides, like super function, I mean, or super entertainment? Gosh, that's, (laughs) that's a, a, yeah, it's a tough question. Cause I think like, are people not using Uber anymore because of everything that's happened with their CEO? Like, I wonder how many people actually made a discernment of like ethics. Yeah. I don't want to support this company. Actually. Really? uh, Yeah. I've heard a lot. And, and even Uber's new CEO, I think has tied the, the recent decision in London, um, where Uber lost their license in London to basically that bad behavior. Mm. Um, and so, so he, I think there was a, a great letter that he put out to all the employees that basically, um, and it's an example of leadership, right. And, and great leadership. And we need a lot of that. Um, but it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it he basically right said like, we, like, we need to own this. We can't just say, oh, we can't just say, oh, London is being unfair to us. No, we, there's a culture and there's a, there's a true hard dollar cost to not having a culture that is actually compatible with the world. And so we need to fix that as a company. Um, great example of, of leadership, um, uh, and especially for a brand new CEO who's brought into a company that's been, you know, one of the most successful companies over the last couple of years. Um, but gosh, that that struggle, right, of technology and media and and so many, right, that that blend because great tech kind of isn't enough. Yeah. Um, you still have to have great great storytelling. Yeah, I would agree, and, and I think that trying to be both, if you're coming from either side is is tricky like I, I almost would say that it would be stronger to acquire a company that's a that's just great at storytelling and already has a really robust ip library and knows the economics mm-hmm. of the television space and the hollywood space um is wiser sort of what at&t has done with time warner like i would mm-hmm. th- say that's that's a wiser decision than saying okay we're going to hire a bunch of tv execs and we're going to try to culturally like you know integrate them into a, a technology driven business, which has a totally different roadmap structure, culture structure. Right. Um, and just expect that this is going to work. Right. I, I think it's, I think it's a lot harder than people give credit for. Yeah. So Jocelyn, kind of a macro trend that's happening, right. Is these is subscription based businesses. And I think partly that's a, that's a capitalistic piece that's kind of driving some of that of like, recurring revenue? Is it easier business to fund, easier to predict, easier to scale and grow? Um, so I'm curious, like, what are you seeing in the subscription base 
whether macro from a from a media perspective in places that you see it like how how important is that and what what are your take on subscription as a business model yeah i think that right now it's a really interesting time because in our industry specifically meaning the video space uh subscription or transactional vod svod and tvod are really the answers for a lot of these media companies that are Mm -hmm. trying to move away from advertising supported businesses. And as I've been thinking about that, I mean, we, we made that shift as well, but as I've been thinking about that, uh, I realized that this is actually something that's across the board. I think we're like in a subscription boom right now. Mm. Um, I think that that's being driven by popularity and the success that is assumed from Netflix and mm-hmm. also seen in Netflix's earnings reports. I think it also comes across on Amazon prime in looking at something that's around the commerce side of things and bringing people in and kind of continuing to add value so that they want to just forget about the recurring payment. Um, and I also think that that ultimately the advertising model has become so broken that all businesses are trying to find a way to create sustainable, reliable, consistent revenue lines. Mm-hmm. And it's tough. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's easy for me to stand here and say, it was really, oh, it's tough to do that. Um, but really, like when you're commanding wallet share from a consumer who has 50 different options of where they're going to spend their dollars, uh, you really have to be measured about like what your expectations on growth are, um, how you're going to acquire that customer, anticipated churn that's going to happen on that side of things. And it's a long tail game. So I think if companies are expecting that they can convert subscribers very quickly, I um, we've seen that that's just kind of not the case. I mean, on the s- streaming side, CISO is one business that went out of business recently. They were charging $2.99, I believe, on like their higher end um, price point and like really couldn't drive enough business. It was NBC's comedy vertical mm-hmm. called CISO. Um, Full screen has been having trouble with growth and adoption on that side. Um, AT&T even did a pre-install um, as part of their deal and also bundled them into AT&T's package and kind of that still was still tough. wasn't enough. Yeah. So it's, Even it's definitely um, yeah. difficult, but, um, and it definitely is a micro, I mean, a macro trend that that's taking across, I think all industries. So to me, it seems like you have to have amazing quality to, to deserve the a consumer's dollars to pay when there's so much free stuff out there. Um, and so like, how do you, cause that, that's the ethos, right? We started this as you shared sort of why you started video Inc. That's, that was your ethos is to bring that type of high quality. How, like for other people who are thinking about like creating a subscription business and having that be successful, what, what do you think that bar, what, what is that quality bar? Like how would you kind of define a, a premium offering, um, particularly in the media space where I think this is especially hard because there's so much free content out there. Um, and that is the way of the, like that Instagram is free. Facebook is free. Like consumers are getting all this content for free. So like, how, how would you quantify, like how much better it has to be to convince a consumer to, to pay for it? I would say the bar on quality is, is pretty high. And then I would also say that for us in particular, it's interesting because, um, I was super diligent in early Mm -hmm. in our days of not gaming our numbers so that we could retain quality readership. Mm -hmm. And the result of that is we have a very affluent reader. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of people inside of corporations where they can expense it. So I think having a, like a high bar of quality and then also looking at the threshold of like what's a reasonable rate 
Like if you're, if you're obviously marketing towards a 13, 14 year old, which full screen or like a millennial even like which, which full screen is doing or which CISO is doing, you know, they have to be a little bit more price sensitive than I think we did on our side. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, I mean, I think it's, it ultimately comes down to that. I think it comes down to the right balance of quality to also like threshold of what's in the realm of real, like comfortable for someone to expense right. or to actually have on a recurring payment, right. you know, annually or monthly. And that's what a sign that you're, you are creating, you, you are finding stories and creating information. To me, it says that people are making decisions off of. And so if they don't have it, or they don't have access to it. They're actually at an information disadvantage relative to their competitors, which to me is just a testament of what, what you've created. Well, it's also interesting to uh, put an eye on two really core areas for us, which are um, scoops and breaking news. So mm -hmm. really like information that you can't get anywhere else first. Um, that is, I would say, a good driver of conversions for subscribers. However, it's not, uh, it doesn't drive longevity. Like that story, that full screen and style haul you know, layoffs, rounds of layoffs, Comcast shutting down that business. Like that's not going to be evergreen for very long. We're playing in the news cycle at that yeah, stage. So then yeah. it comes down to like, how can we also raise the bar on contextualizing this content, contextualizing yeah. this news? So NFL launches a deal or announces a deal in a partnership with Facebook to stream kind of global relationship there. That's interesting, but it's, it's more interesting to realize that that's the deal YouTube had two years ago. And right. why was that not renewed with YouTube? Right. 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 And like, you wouldn't get that layer of context from a new writer at TechCrunch yes. because they probably haven't been covering the industry or working in the industry for 10 years. Like I have, or like coaching a reporter when they're looking at news coming in and being like, Hey, don't forget to connect the fact that Vimeo already has done that before three yeah. years ago. Vimeo tried blah, 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 blah. Right. And so I think the added value is that we're not just like quality of writing style necessarily. It's like we're contextualizing what's going on in the space from a really high level and a really long arc of, of right. knowledge base. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. So Jocelyn in Los Angeles, how, um, are there any companies or people in particular that have been helpful as you've had this journey from PR and, and being deep in the industry to now being the, the founder of one of the most, you know, respected journalism companies certainly in the area and, and in, in this space in particular, and just what you're doing is, is I think a model for journalism everywhere, but like who's helped you along the way? Is there anyone that you know kind of comes to mind or any oh either people or businesses? So many. Oh my gosh. So many. <laughs> um, I had, uh, I have a, a wonderful board of advisors that I brought mm -hmm. on really early um, that helped me. Uh, one of those is Russ Axelrod who has a show right now on Go 90. He's also been deep in kind of the brand and entertainment space. He's been wonderful in the terms of like business support from a relationships perspective, but also I'm a single founder. So mm -hmm. sometimes like when you're a, kind of a, very lonely at the top, you don't have another person to kind of like bounce ideas off of or like commiserate with, or like say, I'm really effing scared right now. I don't know what to do. Like, like, let me just run off like my fears real quick and like my doubts and like remind me that I can do this, you know, like yeah. there's sometimes you need some people like that. He's definitely been that way. Another colleague of mine, Margaret Laney, Peter Chotty. I mean, he's a uh, more on like the financial advisory space. He's got a company now called creative media, but he's been great. My lead investor, Alan Debevois, he's been really helpful along the way. So I would say, yeah, like I, I, I probably don't give them as much appreciation as I should. <laughs> um, but yeah. they're like, startups are tough. I don't care what category you're in. Like, 
startups and being the startup founder, whether you're, you've got a co-founder or you're a single founder, I think there's, it's just a lot of pressure and there are wonderful days and there are horrible days and there's all kinds of, you know, peppered days along the way that are very different and having some of those folks to, to chat to, Oh, Michael Davis. I don't even know. I'm like, this is like my award ceremony. We're like, <laughs> yeah. we're the Oscars, <laughs> we're like Oscars. Emmys territory right now, streamies. And I'm if, kind if of it, like, Oh, you... here's my acceptance speech. All the people out there who helped me along the way. <laughs> if it goes through line, we'll just start playing the music. Yeah. And not... <laughs> oh, my mom, my dad. Um, um, oh yeah. That neighbor who like listened to me cry that day was so sweet. Like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they're, they're like, I mean, I would say like, hold on to those people, like the people who will give you, uh, just space to yeah. vent and then still continue to lift you up and also aren't ashamed or scared to give you some hard feedback when it's, you yeah. know, when it's merited, I guess like the same mantra that I have for videoing is the same one that I, uh, take with my advisors and partners and even employees. Like, yeah, I'm open, I'm open to the the glory days and also the constructive feedback when, you know, when right. it's deserved. <laughs> Absolutely. Which you have to be as a founder. So, um, one of the things we love to ask on the show is how can the LA tech community help you? So if there was one request you would want to make of the community, what, what comes to mind? How, how can we help you and, and help video Inc.? I would say, uh, you know, audience, actual quality audience for us is really important. So I would say that if you're in the video industry or you know someone who's in the video industry, take a look at what we are doing. And if it's a value, just share it. Mm-hmm. You know, if, it, if you find value from the coverage that we're providing and from the events and educational programming and all of the things that we're doing, then, you know, share it with someone who could be better at their job because they have more mm-hmm. knowledge, you know, yeah. more knowledge on the industry. That's ultimately like what I want videoing to be. Amazing. So, Jocelyn, where um, where can we find you? Um, how can people, if people want to follow video? Right now I'm in Venice. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I'm in Venice. <laughs> so we'll look for you on the streets of Venice. I don't really digitally. cross the 405. So sometimes I don't cross Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Which you understand because you're a Westsider as well. So it's too. like yes. it's like the Great Wall of China might as well be the 405. Yeah. It's just it, it, well, it's a real thing because the the traffic it's actually like a 30 minute commitment just to cross oh, yeah. that boundary. So it's a uh, it's it's like going through the border. Um, but no, you can find us on um, um, thevideoinkink.com, um, and obviously on our social handles uh, as well. But I would say are the primary places on our. Um, on our destination site where we house there, all of our coverage and videos and video interviews and educational programs, events, all that stuff. Amazing. Um, Jocelyn, it's been a pleasure. Thank yeah, you so much. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Um, this has been fascinating. And to all the founders, aspiring founders, anyone who's listening, you can do it. Just go for it. Don't <laughs> give up. Yeah. Go Continue for it. to iterate. Just don't give up. <laughs> Um, so thank you, everyone. Uh, this has been Jocelyn Johnson. Um, I'm your guest host, Brian Nickerson, filling in for Esprit Devora. And uh, Jocelyn, thank you again for being a wonderful guest. Yeah, thanks for having me. So great. We Are LA Tech is independently funded by the community. We couldn't make this happen without your support. If you too want to contribute to We Are LA Tech and see us making the podcast, building the mobile apps, creating the events year after year, consider contributing at patreon.com. That's P A T. R-E-O-N dot com slash we are LA tech. Thank you. We appreciate you. 
Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener at wearelatech.love. Linked in the show notes.